Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey everyone, it's Greg Stanley. Before I start this episode, I do want to give a quick shout out to Arm Sotheby's. They have been a huge supporter of this podcast. So much so that now we're the official podcast of RM Sotheby's. So if you subscribe to their email blast, you will see these podcasts come out at least once a week. So I'd like to give them a big thank you for making this podcast possible. You can check out all of RM Sotheby's information at rmsotheby's.com. And as most of you know, if you've listened to this podcast in any form in the past, there are not only the big auctions happening at Amelia Island, Monterey, Scottsdale, and Auburn. But we do have online auctions the last week of every month right now. So a lot of opportunities to realize your dream car or to consign your car so someone can have it in their garage. Now today is all about analog supercars. Now why did I pick this? Well, I've been hearing the words analog and supercars a lot lately out there. And I thought, well, let me do a little bit of a deep dive. And as I attend these auctions, I'm seeing some interesting trends arise, specifically as it relates to these cars that are quote-unquote analog. Now, what do I mean by analog? Well, analog is basically any car that doesn't have computers in it. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, I am massaging that a little bit to say cars that mostly don't have computers in them. Otherwise, you could go back to the mid-80s and find cars that started to have computers in them. So, analog, as it's referred to on this podcast, relates to the cars that are the last of a kind. Today, most cars have computers in them. There's not actually an analog, quote-unquote, car I can think of today. Off the top of my head, as every single car out there pretty much has some type of computer that helps manage the systems of the car or driver assistance. So to define an analog car, I looked at numerous articles. So basically all cars were analog prior to the mid-1990s. So every car ever built up until the mid-1990s was analog because there were no computers in them. An easy identifier is if you can work on a car without a special tool, a code reader, or a laptop. There's no series of ones and zeros involved. And when you push down an accelerator pedal, it does not transmit electric signals to the rest of the car. It just goes. The identifier of an analog car for the purpose of this podcast is for the time frame when quote-unquote digital cars began appearing. Think of a Tesla. Now, some would make the argument that the 1992 Dodge Viper was one of the last great analog cars that truly did not have any computer assistance. It didn't even have power steering, power brakes, or windows. Now, all the descriptions I read during this podcast are from Haggerty and their valuation tools. I'm a big fan of what Haggerty does, and as you know, we have a lot of Haggerty partners that are on this podcast, so I will reference the nice descriptors in their valuation tools. So now here is our list. This is from old to new. So we're going to start with the oldest ones on my list as far as analog supercars that are on the rise. The first is the 1987 to 1992 Ferrari F40. Now, the F40 was not only the last road-going Ferrari born, 
why Enzo was still alive, but was also named to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Mark. Designed as the next flagship, flagship supercar after the 288 GTO, the F40 utilized an evolutionary version of the GTO's chassis and double wishbone suspension, as well as using the same 96-inch wheelbase. What was presented to the public in 1987 was an absolute no-compromise car that utilized a Pininfarina-designed lightweight composite and aluminum body with IMSA-inspired widened fenders and an austere interior, all in the name of saving weight. The engine was a 2.9-liter twin-turbo V8, again descended from that last used in the 288 GTO, that made 470 horsepower and propelled the car from 0 to 60 in 4 seconds en route to a top speed of just over 200 miles an hour. Ferrari built 1,315 examples from 1987 to 1992, with approximately 211 U.S. spec cars coming stateside early in 1990. By the time the car hit American shores, some new owners paid almost three times the approximate $400,000 list price, which is ironically what they're selling for today, around $1.2 million. U.S. cars had different fuel tanks and seats, stronger front and rear bodywork in order to meet crash standards, and a different state of engine tune that allegedly offered more power than the Eurocar, in spite of the additional of U.S. required emissions equipment. The F40 was a true expression of stripped-down, single-minded mission focus, and anti-lock brakes weren't even on the spec sheet that proved to be the last car of its kind. As a result, the car's depreciation curve didn't last long, and collectors today seek these exceptional cars out no matter the price. I think they're one of the prettiest cars ever. I did look at R.M. Sotheby's history on selling these cars, and every single one of them, there's about 25 of them, were red, except for, I believe, two race cars. One was blue, and I think the other one was yellow. So pretty crazy if you can find one that's not red or that wasn't trashed by the guys at Gas Monkey Garage and rebuilt. Now, the Haggerty three-year trend on this car is up 17.9%, so almost 18%. Our next car is the 1991-1995 Bugatti EB110. Now, when the storied Bugatti nameplate was resurrected in 1987, the revived company announced work on a new mini-engine two-seat supercar. It was unveiled in September of 1991 in Paris and coincided with the 110th anniversary of Bugatti's birth, thus the model's name, the EB110. The new car had a carbon fiber monocoque chassis that utilized a four-wheel independent wishbone suspension with Brembo brakes and bespoke 18-inch BBS alloy wheels fitted at all four corners. I don't think it was the prettiest car in the world. It was hard to make that Bugatti horseshoe on the front look good. I do believe it has aged well. Behind the two-seat cockpit sat a new midship-mounted 16-valve 3.5-liter V12 engine with an unprecedented four turbochargers that produced 561 horsepower and drove all four wheels through a six-speed gearbox. The EB10's top end was well in excess of 210 miles per hour, making it one of the elite performer performance cars of its day, although I don't recall that ever actually being tested. Much like Jaguar's XJ220, the EB110 was at least partially a victim of the rapidly softening supercar market in the mid-1990s. Bugatti halted production in 1995 after approximately 129 cars had been built, including some higher horsepower SS form, one of which was owned by Michael Schumacher. Some unused and surplus chassis post-production went to B Engineering and Dower for their own projects, 
and the latter even completed a few cars after Bugatti had shuttered its doors. The Bugatti's EB10's fantastic performance, appearance, and very low production, coupled with a bespoke status for almost every part of the car and engine, promises a thrilling, expensive, and challenging ownership experience today for those with the means and bravery necessary to accept the task. After a brief stint with also-ran status, the car today is highly prized and well-regarded among knowledgeable enthusiasts. Jay Leno being one of them, and you can see a nice video he did about a year ago. Someone brought their EB110 into his shop, and they did a nice review of it. And he actually has a spare engine, which was hand-built by Bugatti. It wasn't like they used a Mercedes engine and souped it up. They actually built their own engine, which is pretty amazing. Now, the three-year trend on the EB110 from Haggerty is up 39.5%. So that one is on a tear. Okay, our next one is the most iconic supercar ever built by pretty much everyone's standard, and that is the 1992 to 1998 McLaren F1. The McLaren F1 stands among the greatest sports cars of all time, a revolutionary vehicle that still sets the bar for supercars, and that is no lie. The brainchild of Gordon Murray, who we will mention again here in the future, the renowned designer and technical director of the McLaren Formula One team, the F1 was produced from 1994 to 1998 by McLaren Automotive, a spinoff of the racing team. With a top speed of 240.1 miles per hour, which was tested, the F1 became the fastest production car in history, a record it would hold until 2005. I wonder who broke that. Maybe a Bugatti, perhaps? A radical three-seat cockpit and butterfly doors made the F1 look every bit as exotic as its carbon fiber monocoque body, the first such application in a road car. It wasn't the only unconventional material employed by Murray, as the F1's engine compartment was lined with gold foil to insulate the carbon fiber body from potential heat-induced deformation. Powered by a 6.1-liter BMW Source V12, the 2,425-pound F1 boasted an astonishing power-to-weight ratio. Its 627 horsepower and 479 pound-feet of torque were routed through a six-speed manual transmission and a limited slip differential. The F1's mid-engine design and short 107-inch wheelbase helped the double wishbone aluminum suspension provided with exceptional handling. Murray wanted the F1, produced from 1994 to 1998, be, to be far more than a thinly disguised racing car, so the F1 was fitted with a full host of creature comforts, including air conditioning, electric defroster, remote locking, and a CD changer. The central position driver's seat was custom-fitted to each owner, laid up in carbon fiber and covered with Connolly leather. Pedal and steering wheel adjustment was also custom-fitted by the factory. Despite the original intention for the F1 to be just a road car, customer demand led to a racing version. The resultant McLaren F1 GTR achieved a Le Mans victory in its first attempt in 1995. Now, these were trading around $18 million. Well, now they're trading upwards of $20 million. And the three-year Haggerty trend is up 36.9%. I think Jay Leno famously bought his for slightly used for $880,000. And it's worth about $20 million now. That is insane. All right, the next one is the 1995 to 1997 Ferrari F50. Now, as they had done for their 40th anniversary with the F40, Ferrari ushered in their 50th in 1995 with another supercar, the F50. As with its F40 predecessor, the F50 would be inspired by Ferrari's racing efforts, although the F50 had more direct Grand Prix connections. 
The new Ferrari F50 shared its layout with their com- contemporary F1 car by utilizing a carbon fiber chassis and having its F1-based 65-degree V12 bolted directly onto the chassis and acting as a load-bearing member for the rear suspension and transaxle. The F50 was meant to be like a Formula 1 car for the road, and the 60-valve, 4.7-liter, 520-horsepower V12 really was a direct development of the engine used in Scudiera Ferrari's 3.5-liter Formula 1 cars five years earlier. The F1 connection continued with the four-wheel independent suspension that employed electronically controlled and horizontally mounted dampers and springs, and the emission of power steering, power brakes, and ABS ensured a most direct road feel for the driver. Now, of note, there was one article that did not count the F50 as an analog car, and that was because it had, like I just said, electronic dampers that automatically adjusted based on vehicle parameters. So you could pull this one out of the list. Also, famously, when it was launched, it was actually slower than the F40, which is not mentioned in this article. The distinctive and often polarizing Pininfarina bodywork, amen to that, enveloped all of this, and a removable hardtop was integrated into the design. Ferrari didn't offer press cars for performance testing at the time, and by the time journalists got their hands on a car, the rumors of fantastic performance that included sub-4-second 0-60 times and 190-plus miles per hour were confirmed. The Ferrari F50's exclusive allure was aided by Ferrari's scheme to offer cars only to pre-screened customers via a two-year lease arrangement in order to keep spectators out of the mix. Furthermore, to maintain exclusivity, Ferrari produced only 349 cars, from 1995 to 1997, and that is why they are trading for approximately twice the price of an F40. By Ferrari's estimations, this was one less than the market demanded. U.S.-compliant cars were part of the production run, and five colors were offered, although the vast majority of them were delivered in traditional Rosso Corsa, i.e. red. Today, these cars are coveted by their owners and trade as commodities as much as they do as cars. While it does and probably always will live in the shadow of the F40, a true masterpiece that preceded it, the F50 is still a pivotal car in Ferrari's history that established the company's tradition of super-exclusive halo cars that has continued with the Enzo and the LaFerrari. Worst name ever. It's 1990s supercar royalty and, indeed, the last road car to have a Formula 1-derived engine. Some testers have complained of the stiff, even jarring ride thanks to the engine bolted directly onto the carbon fiber chassis, but the wail of that V12 and the brilliance of the overall design whether you like this Stanley or not, make it all worth it. And as I kind of referenced there, I am not a fan of the styling, but it's growing on me with age. Now, the Haggerty three-year trend on this car is actually down, down 7.4%. Okay, the next one is, yes, another Ferrari, but it's actually the car that prompted me to make this episode. Why? Because I've seen these trading in the auction market, and it seems like they're going up in value exponentially recently, especially for low-mile examples. Now, this is the Ferrari 550 Marinello. So in 1996, Ferrari replaced their flagship mid-engine Testarossa 512TR and 512M series with the 550 Marinello. The 550 signaled a historic return to a front-engine rear transactional configuration that was last seen on the legendary 365 GTB4 Daytona 25 years earlier and this layout delivered a more comfortable and spacious interior when compared to the car's mid-engined predecessor. I think these are beautiful cars. I think they're absolutely gorgeous. And I really love the Barchetta, the convertible version. The Ferrari 550's 485-horsepower 5.5-liter V12, which is where the 550 name comes from, 
delivered tremendous performance as evidenced by a 0-60 to time in a low 4-second range and a top speed of close to 200 miles an hour. Best of all, this performance seemed almost effortless thanks to power steering, a comfortable driving position, and an abundance of torque available from the engine at low RPM. Apparently, these suffer from the sticky button disease, so as the plastics on the buttons age, I don't know if they expand or slightly melt or what, but you know they'll start sticking. And so one of the things you have to get done on these cars to recommission, recommission them is to fix the stickiness, which is kind of interesting. Ferrari built 3,083 550 Maranellos from 1996 through 2001, all with six-speed manual gearboxes. In 2000, the company also built 448 examples of a 550 Barchetta convertible that had a simple canvas top for those that wanted an open-air driving experience, as well as even more exclusivity than the coupe. Factory options were minimal, with an especially appealing one being Daytona-style multicolor seats inspired by those from the early 365 GTB fours. Ironically, if you if you're a fan of the band Rush, they reference Barchetta in one of their I think it's in Tom Sawyer. Anyways, in one of their songs, they reference Barchetta. I had to look it up when I was a little kid, which actually means I think boat in Italian. But hey, it is what it is. All right, in 2002, the Ferrari 550M Marinello was introduced. The car further evolved the stunning 550 Marinello's design with a revised front end and a new interior. More importantly. The 550's engine was increased to a size of 5.75 liters, hence the 575, and a power jumped to a hefty 515 horsepower. The 575 also had an adaptive suspension and an optional F1-style transmission to improve driving dynamics and shift times. Approximately 2,100 Ferrari 575 M Marinellos were produced between 2002 and 2006, at which point Ferrari's 599 GTB picked up the GT torch, which I don't like the way those things look. Anyways, wasn't it nice back when 550 meant 5.5 liter and 575 meant 5.75 liters? Everything's gone all screwy nowadays. What does the F12 mean exactly? All right, the Ferrari 550 and 575 have proved to be remarkably trouble-free as far as late model exotic cars go, with some of the only potential problems being minor electrical issues, premature wear of cooling hoses, and for the 550, some partial failures of engine mounts, ouch, that was later corrected on the 575. Engine work, including the replacement of timing belts, can be performed with the engine remaining in the car, which helps keep some of Ferrari's notorious upkeep costs in check. The car also provides a thorough modern interpretation of the classic Ferrari GT. All right, so these are the ones I said I've seen going up recently in the marketplace, and the Haggerty three-year trend is plus 15.4%. Okay, the next one I don't have as much on because it's actually not in Haggerty's database. It's the 2000 to approximately 2011 Pagani Zonda. So this car is a classic supercar setup, mid-engine rear-wheel drive and a manual transmission. They're absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Built by Pagani, who he used to work for Lamborghini and designed the Countach's 25th anniversary model. Then he decided to go off on his own and make his own supercar. Based also in Monada, which is where Ferrari is based. Absolutely gorgeous cars. And the last version had an AMG-built V12 with upwards of 700 horsepower. So that is a gorgeous, beautiful analog supercar. And the reason it's not in the database is because typically they don't tra ever trade publicly or at auction. Usually it's all done privately. Okay, the next one is the 2001 to 2006 Lamborghini Murcielago. I'm afraid I don't have a ton of information on this one either. So this was the first car under 
its new ownership VW Volkswagen, and it was generally a higher quality machine than the one it replaced, but a more civilized and softened one as two. So quite interesting looking. I mean, this is, you know, Lamborghinis always have been out there, very angular, very wide, uh, very imposing. And this one is no different. Now, the three-year trend on this one is flat, 0.0%. So this is another example of one of the analog cars that really hasn't moved much in the marketplace, probably because of repair costs, if I had to guess. And I don't know that the Lamborghini guys are that much into history of the cars like the Ferrari and Porsche guys are. Anyway, so not a lot of information on that one, but that one is the 2001 to 2006 Lamborghini Murcielago. All right, the next one is the 2004 to 2007 Porsche Carrera GT. Now, I'm not going to go in depth on this one either, but this is the cover art for this episode. And these came out, obviously, mid-2000s. And this is the one that people are saying will be the next McLaren F1. Not many of them were built to begin with. It has a one-off V10 rear engine design. There is no other V10 engine in Porsche's history, at least from a streetcar perspective that I'm aware of. It's a beautiful car. It's notoriously tricky if the rear shocks have not been replaced or maintained appropriately. Jay Leno famously let off the gas, uh, I think it was at Talladega, while he had his at about 160 miles an hour and did two or three 360s on the racetrack, which I'm sure gave him a heart attack. He said it was it was his fault. He basically let up off the gas as he was trying to slow down a little bit too quick, so the rear end came around. Now, this one is iconic, like I said. It's beautiful. They're going up in price, and the most recent Haggerty trend for the latest three years is up 18.2%. All right, the next one is the 2005 to 2006 Ford GT, another gorgeous car, it's been around for a while now. This one has surprised everybody how it's maintaining its value over the years because it's not like they didn't make a bunch of them, but they commonly trade between two hundred dollars and $400,000 even today. So every once in a while, a large company exhibits the flexibility and ingenuity necessary to successfully bring a low-volume niche car to market. The Dodge Viper is one example, and the Ford GT is another. The Ford GT was born during a wave of fresh thinking, rebirth, and retro-inspired nostalgia at Ford that saw several old nameplates reappear in their product line. In 2002, the GT40 concept car was shown at the North American International Auto Show with a look and a name that paid tribute to the company's original GT40 race cars of four decades prior. By the end of 2004, production had begun on this mid-engine 43-inch tall supercar, which was now called the GT. The original GT40 nameplate was unavailable to Ford as it was owned by Saphir, who had built a run of GT40 continuation cars in the 1980s. And also, it's 43 inches tall, so it should be called the GT43, which is kind of awkward. Production of each Ford GT involved multiple facilities with each car starting life in Ohio and being completed at Ford's own SVT factory in Michigan. Just over 4,000 cars were built from 2004 to 2006. The two-seat Ford GT used a supercharged 32-valve V8 with 550 horsepower, which was mounted in a hydroformed aluminum and composite chassis that featured exotic suspension pieces and Brembo brakes at all four corners. Handling and braking were as impressive as the coupe's 3.7-second 0-60 sprint and a plus 200-mile-per-hour top speed. Positive reviews as well as favorable comparisons to the comp- contemporary Ferrari 360 430 only fueled the frenzy for this car, and many sold well above MSRP. However, dealers were discounting cars by the end of production in 2006. That is crazy. 
Four options were available on the GT, and these include Shelby-type racing stripes, forged BBS wheels, painted brake calipers, and an upgraded sound system. Most cars were equipped with all four of these options, and some 2006 cars had a gulf blue and orange heritage paint scheme that harkened back to the GT40's glory days at Le Mans. Those in the market today for Ford GT should be aware that some early production cars had issues with their electrical systems and suspension control arms, as well as engine main seal oil leaks. Throughout the production run, some cars also suffered axle bolt failures. <laughs> Ouch. Ford corrected all of this under warranty, so these well-publicized issues should not represent a current problem, although documentation for the warranty work can provide peace of mind. Today, the Ford GT offers a breathtaking level of mid-engine performance, coupled with reliability that is difficult for some of its European contemporaries to match. For this reason, the Ford GT has found a home in a number of top-tier collections around the world and is possibly the finest American car developed during the past 30 years. Now, as I mentioned, this one has been going up, and what's interesting is there are different trend lines depending on if it's the base Ford GT or if it's the Heritage Edition. So the base Ford GT is actually down over the last three years, minus 2.7%. And the Heritage Edition is up 10.5%. The next one is a 2006 to 2010 Koenigsegg CCX. I do not have a lot of information about this car. It's not in Haggerty's database because they were built in such low numbers. But this car is pretty much hand-built. This one guy's, I think it's Christian Koenigsegg. It's his vision. He was able to build this car. It's powered by 817 horsepower, 4.7 liter twin supercharged V8. Analog car incredible not the prettiest thing in the world but it's got a lot of unique and revolutionary design ideas attached to it so be sure to check that one out all right we've got two more to go we've got the 2010 porsche not porsche porsche 911 gt2 rs i say that because i've been saying porsche for like 47 years and uh i'm finally trying to get to where i say porsche correctly but i figure if canapa says porsche and jay leno says porsche ah, who cares all right this car this porsche has a 3.6-liter bi-turbo flat-six that generates a total of 612 horsepower. It's made it to a manual gearbox that sends all that power to the rear wheels, and it's lapped the Nürburgring in a staggering 7 minutes and 18 seconds. Just 500 units were made back in 2010, and this is another analog car that's declining a little bit. It's actually down 5.7%. That one might be related to all the different models they had coming out. Uh, collectible models where there's a little bit cannibalization going on there as far as which one people are gravitating more towards and i understand i haven't driven one but this the gt2 rs is is pretty brutal on the street with its suspension setup all right the last car is actually a new car believe it or not i mentioned gordon murray earlier in the development of his mclaren f1 well he decided to make another new car and he wanted it to be analog can you believe that Here is a quote from him. The McLaren F1 was the central milestone. Very sexy, pure lightweight, nothing it didn't need. So I thought, why don't we do the last great analog supercar, which is the Gordon Murray T50. I don't like the name. But the T50 is intended to be a celebration of Murray's 50-year career in the automotive industry. So that's pretty cool. Now this is a $3 million three-seat hypercar. $1 million per seat. It has a Cosworth-built V12 that makes 650 horsepower and has a red line of over 12,000 RPM. The claimed curb weight is under 2,200 pounds. So think about that. Over 600 horsepower, under 2,200 pounds. 
It will share the McLaren F1 three-seat layout, as I mentioned, naturally aspirated V12 engine, and a manual gearbox. Now, the most interesting thing about this is that it has a huge fan sitting on the back of it, which helps with downforce. This was drawn from the famous BT46B fan car, race car, which Murray designed in 1978 and which won the only Formula One race it ever entered in in spectacular style. So that is why the T50 has a big fan on the back of it. So that is it for this episode of Cars on the Rise, Analog Supercars. If you feel like I missed any, please shoot me a note at gstanley at rmsouthabees.com or at greg at thecollectorcarpodcast.com. And as always, keep your tires straight, keep your hands on the wheel, foot in the gas, and I'll talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast. Collector Car Podcast.